Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Kings 20, reading verses 1 through 14. 1 Kings 20, verses 1 through 14. Beginning to read with verse 1. Now Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all his forces together. Thirty-two kings were with him with horses and chariots. And he went up and besieged Samaria and made war against it. Then he sent messages, messengers into the city to Ahab, king of Israel, and said to him, Thus says Ben-Hadad, Your silver and your gold are mine. Your loveliest wives and children are mine. And the king of Israel answered and said, My lord, O king, just as you say, I and all that I have are yours. Then the messengers came back and said, Thus speaks Ben-Hadad, saying, Indeed I have sent to you, saying, You shall deliver to me your silver and your gold, your wives and your children. But I will send my servants to you tomorrow about this time, and they shall search your house and the houses of your servants, and it shall be that whatever is pleasant in your eyes, they will put it in their hands and take it. So the king of Israel called all the elders of the land and said, Notice, please, and see how this man seeks trouble. For he sent to me for my wives and my children, my silver and my gold, and I did not deny him. And all the elders and all the people said to him, Do not listen or consent. Therefore he said to the messengers of Ben-Hadad, Tell my lord the king all that you sent to me, uh, all that you sent for to your servants the first time I will do, but this thing I cannot do. And the messengers departed and brought back word to him. Then Ben-Hadad sent to him and said, The gods do so to me and more also if enough dust is left of Samaria for a handful for each of the people who follow me. So the king of Israel answered and said, Tell him, Let not the one who puts on his armor boast like the one who takes it off. And it happened that when Ben-Hadad heard this message, as he and the kings were drinking at the command post, that he said to his servants, Get ready. And they got ready to attack the city. Suddenly a prophet approached Ahab, king of Israel, saying, Thus says the Lord, have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will deliver it into your hand today, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So Ahab said, By whom? And he said, Thus says the Lord, by the young leaders of the provinces. Then he said, Who will set the battle in order? And he answered, You. <laughs> May the Lord bless this reading to our understanding. Well, as we're reading through our Bibles and we come to passages like this, we think, why in the world is the Lord entertained or cognizant at all of all of such wretches as Ben-Hadad and Ahab? Why is a whole chapter about this? And there are positives and negatives and all kinds of events that swirl around and develop this way and that. Why is God involved with this? Why, why are we not reading about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob or Joseph? And their more clear walks with the Lord. Why does the Lord bother us with such clutter as Ben-Hadad and, uh, and Ahab? We know Ahab, uh, we know that in the end, uh, he has a, a, a bloody death. We know his wife is thrown off the parapets 
of one of the city walls out of utter divine disgust, uh, we know something of Ben-Hadad. Hadad was a Moabite goddess. And so um, his name, Ben-Hadad, ben means the, the, the son of or the child of this goddess, Hadad. So uh, in a sense, he's named after a satanic figure, a, a, a corrupt uh, anti-Christian uh, spirit or um, divine presence, uh, so-called, of human concoction, is if men could really create gods, they can't. But here are these two disreputable characters, and they're, they're, uh, they, they come together, they have this uh, exchange, is a word, of words, and then uh, Ahab is threatened with uh, the, not only the siege of the city, but the capture of the city, and Ben-Hadad is saying there won't be enough dust left after I get done with you, there won't be enough dust left for any of my men, men to have a handful of it. You'll be so utterly destroyed. Um, this is like the, the in, in modern term, in modern Iraqi terms, this is the mother of all battles that, that he is prophesying that will fall upon King Ahab. But why does God throw this at us in the scriptures? Why does God give us this to think about? What is going on here? Uh, why would God give the wicked Ahab a victory? And so the title of the sermon is An Ahab Victory. And you can put a question mark or an exclamation point after that. Why would why are we why does God feature this victory? Because it's not a victory of good over evil. It's a victory of of it's a it's a measured victory where the wicked people of God are somehow blessed with a, a temporal victory over this adversary. And what does it all mean? I mean, if, if Ahab wins this battle, does that mean that Israel is going to return to the Lord? No. So why does God deal with these things? Well, I think the, the lesson is in this, that, that God, would want, God would like to encourage us with the fact that in this world, and in our world today, in our families, there's a lot of clutter. There's a lot of stuff going on. And even though we can't always see a direct line or a direct connection between that stuff and, and uh, the kingdom of God or divine progress, we need to know that God is there in the midst of that, that God has not forgotten us, that God's foreordinations encompass not only the, the blessings of the elect line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and, uh, and Jesus, and all of those that are his children. God's, uh, God's providences not only focus on them, but God's providences control everything. So that even those people who don't seem to be influenced at all by the Lord, even those who are caught up in more or less total vanity, are still, they still operate under the foreordinations and the providences of the living God. Now, is this not a confidence to us? Is this not something that helps us? You're at work, something goes wrong. You wonder, what is this going to mean for our company? Uh, does it mean I'll be let go here if, if the account, economy of the country, co company turns downward? Or if, if this thing that I heard today doesn't work out, what does it mean? It means that in the midst of the, I want you to think back to this First uh, Kings chapter 20, and to the doings of Ben-Hadad and Ahab, and just realize 
even here, God was acting. God not only acted, but he gave us scriptures on it. He told us that he that this what was going on here, what was transacting, came from him. And his direct ordination is spirit. He even sends a prophet in the midst of this. So we know that he was in charge. This is the, the chapter of the book that we're on is the long decline now of Israel. They had reached the heights under David and Solomon. And now there's this long decline, first of the northern ten tribes, then of Judah and Benjamin in the south. This long decline until the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. But there were many centuries involved in here, involved in this. And so God gives us a lesson here that he is in charge, that he is in control, and that there are God's people that are alive in times just such as this. And we are alive. You and I are alive in times just such as this. In America, we're, we don't have any clear um, leadership of the elect. We don't have any manifest kingdom of God in our midst. There's a lot of confusion. There are leaders, there are people here and there who are, in a sense, proclaiming or preaching or prophesying good things. But outside of that, there's a lot of confusion. There are outright demonic things happening in our land. There are people in high places who are prophesying antichrist instead of Christ, and they're demanding that we line up behind them and bow our knees to their great ideas. We see these things, and we we are we are somewhat amazed by them. Well, let's look at the uh, the outline here. We see here in this account. We see here is a story where none of the parties are elect. I've already introduced this. I've already explained it uh, by degree. But none of the parties are elect. Ben Hadad was a pagan king named after uh, a pagan god, after a false god, after a satanic figure. Hadad. A spiritual entity that really was not. It was just in the minds of the people, drummed up by and, and encouraged by um, angels, uh, fallen angels and uh, spirits of the dead. And he's the king of this, this uh, of uh, Syria. And he's come, he's moved 30, 40 miles to the southwest to besiege the city of Samaria which is a breakaway renegade part of the kingdom of the northern two tribes, but Samaria is the capital of these ten tribes. Uh, this is where King Ahab ensconced himself in his, uh, his palace there, such as it was. And so we know that the ten tribes are not blessed. We know that this is the result of civil war. We know that, this, that God had shown his displeasure upon them and told them, that they would not prosper. Ultimately, he would send a Messiah who would prosper, uh, but uh, not these northern ten tribes. And we know from history after this that the ten tribes, they ended up um, basically uh, being absorbed into the peoples of the world. Some Jew, they, 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 were, they were taken to Assyria. We've got here Syria, the Syria of Ben-Hadad, but behind the Syria of Ben-Hadad, we have Shalmaneser, the third, Shalmaneser the third. He was a little bit like uh, the Babylonian king uh, of Nebuchadnezzar and, uh, and those that came after him who vitiated and destroyed Israel 
This was later, though. Uh, right now, they were they were concerned because the nation state of Assyria to their northeast was becoming stronger and stronger and stronger, and uh, even as this even as these events here go on, and this is part of the justification for why God did what He did. Uh, this uh, king Shalmaneser was gaining power, and he was sending his armies down into this part of Palestine to take control of them. He would ultimately uh, control, conquer both Syria, who is now uh, uh, antagonizing Samaria, or northern Israel, and he would also antagonize and overcome Israel. So these are the, these are the, the political events that are swirling around. And none of it's good. All of it's basically pagan. The, the, the affairs of the world, the worldly and their designs, the worldly and their aspirations, the worldly and their cunning, the worldly and their anger and their hatred against the Lord and against his anointed. If they cannot conquer Judah, also they will at least conquer the northern ten tribes. They'll at least conquer Ben-Hadad and Syria. And so in the midst of this situation, this climate, we see that God is acting and uh, he inspires Ben-Hadad to come and to try to uh, strengthen himself by taking this other group captive, these northern ten tribes and the capital of Syria, to get their gold and to um, enhance his strength with their strength. And so uh, this is uh, the, the God in this passage of scripture details a story where none of the parties are elect. Now this teaches us that God is, God has a special focus on the elect but all the, the other peoples of the world are not outside of his focus. God is not a man that he cannot focus beyond his core theme. He's mighty. He's almighty. And it's nothing for him to control all the hearts and all the minds of the people of the world as he would. And so this is what's going on here in this uh, story. Now the second thing is here that God uses both Ben-Hadad and Ahab for his purposes. These are both ungodly men. But God uses them for his own purposes. Part of the background to the story is that even as Shalmaneser moves toward Israel to conquer them, to destroy them, to take away their riches, uh, God was uh, protecting Judah for many more years than he protected northern Israel. And uh, God was doing that through these affairs. He was, in a sense, he was lessening uh, Ben-Hadad's strength by giving him the idea that he could easily conquer Samaria. So he moves against Samaria. And he was working with uh, Ahab. Ahab was cursed by God for dividing up the nation and for being such a wicked king. And, and so God was using Ben-Hadad to judge Ahab, and he was using Ahab to weaken Ben-Hadad so that Shalmaneser would come, come upon them both and that uh, Shalmaneser would have an easier way with Ben-Hadad in Syria so that he would not, uh, that he would not focus, his focus could not be uniformly or, or totally upon Israel. So we have all of these things going on behind the behind the scenes, and uh, mm, um, both of these men, even though they're ungodly, they play a part. And many of the scriptures, like we read and like we've sung already in the Psalms this morning, Psalm twenty-two, H, uh, God works 
through the ungodly. He has his designs and he works out through them. Uh, they may not be godly, they may not be elect, but God will work through them and he took to accomplish his purposes. Just because God does not save you or incorporate you into his blessed church, it doesn't mean that you are running free and that you can do whatever you want. God is going to use you nonetheless. He uses the elect for sure to bring wonderful pay praises to his name, to bring the light instead of the darkness. But he uses the darkness also for his own purposes. Uh, sometimes it's to make things darker and to make them suffer more in, in, in time, temporarily in time. Uh, often it's to, often he works with the, the ungodly to weaken them. In this case, we have two forces that it were both set against the Lord we wonder, how does the church survive in times like this? Well, one of the ways it, is, it survives, one of the ways that Judah survived was that God had both ungodly groups working against each other. And he'll give victory to one over the other to weaken the other one so that it gives more time and opportunity to the godly. So many of our psalms, um, as we've sung this morning, of Psalm 43, defend me, God, and plead my case against a godless clan, deliver me from fraudulent, unjust, and wicked man. And so God delivers us by these affairs that he contrives and ordains amongst the ungodly. And it's a wonderful providence. One of the things that we can pray for when things are coming against us, when things are working against us, can we not pray, oh God, bless me by over overwhelming and, and overcoming or at least weakening the ungodly, so that they that, so that they don't have so they have less attention that they can give to us in the congregational meeting and the annual meeting we have. I, I hope to share something of of the of the role that the, the Ohio gun owners have had, which started in this church uh, many years ago. And uh, I hope to I hope to share something of the good news that God has used the Ohio gun owners not just for the idea of Second Amendment rights, but he's used them to weaken the ungodly. And it's, it's, when you hear the, the tale of what's happened here in Ohio, you just have to smile because very few people are aware of this. Very few. The, certainly the governor, who was weakened by us, uh, is not aware of it. We were not really even aware of it. We were not, we were not trying to weaken the governor. This, we have an, an ungodly governor in many ways. We, we didn't have designs to weaken him to take his attention off of us and to the, the many evil things that he has designed. But in the end, that's what the, God, the Lord worked out, partially through our own group here in southwest Ohio. It's just amazing what God does as he works amongst the ungodly uh, to, uh, to, to weaken them and to restrain them. Um, so... Um, Temporarily, God used Ben-Hadad and Ahab to work against each other. Ultimately, he cursed Ahab for his entreating of, after, after Ahab had defeated Ben-Hadad, then he, he wanted to make a treaty with him that, that follows in the scriptures after this text. He wanted to make a treaty with them, and he did. And God and then God came back and cursed Ahab for making it a treaty with the ungodly. See, but Ahab was operating according to common sense. He was operating according to human wisdom. He was 
he had the best sense of things. There are many people today in the political parties and in Washington, D.C., they just cannot see the straight line from here to there, from, from where we are to a more godly country, to a more godly state. No, 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 no. We've got to take into consideration the circumstances of this world. We can't just do the thing that's right. We have to consider what is the most wise. And by the most wise, they are, they are understanding uh, the most um, the, the most um, uh, pragmatic and the most, uh, the, as the far as they can see it. The problem is that with pragmatism and these kinds of thinking, they never really search the thing out. They're, all, they're always thinking haphazardly. And that's because God has not opened their minds. God has not allowed them to see as much as there is to see. And so they're very short-sighted. But uh, in the midst of this, God uses Israel uh, for his own blessing. And we remember here that with Israel, with these ten tribes, uh, not only are there the, the outright ungodly who are worshiping false gods, uh, like they had set up in, in Samaria, uh, and um, and uh, being entertained with false things. Not only are there people that are pulling down the altars of Bethel, that was preceded our text, we covered that last week, how uh, Israelites themselves were pulling down the blessed memorials that had been planted in earlier years by the patriarchs. And they're pulling those down because they either want the building materials that were there, or they think that they will be blessed by a less, um, a less uh, ostentatious or visible memorial to their past, to their godly leaders. Uh, there are people that think today in America that we are downright ruined or partially ruined by thoughts of Puritanism, thoughts of our past, th thoughts of those who founded our country. They see secularism. They see the separation of church and state being a far more positive theme and, and building principle and energy a far more positive thing than fearing the Lord first of all things. Have no gods before me, God says. Thou shalt have separation between church and state, say our prophecy. Two fundamentally opposite principles. Both promising good, both promising blessing, but totally antagonistic and opposite to one another. And our nation today is enthralled with the idea of secularism. They, they say the polytheism, diversity of ultimate, equally ultimate kinds of ultimate things is much more blessed than to worship one God. Worshiping one God is so constraining. It just limits us and handicaps us from having our, our own strengths really manifest themselves and work for positive things. But of course, all of these words like positive and working and blessing, they're all mitigated by the, how the way we define the words. And we are not defining them the way God would have it. So God uses both Ben-Hadad and Ahab for his purposes despite their ungodliness. Now, the third thing we see here is that God gives Ben-Hadid over to greed and then blesses Ahab. Neither one of them deserve blessing. Both of them are greedy. Both of them have these bad habits and bad, bad um, hearts. But God blesses Ahab temporarily despite their common wickedness. And we see that in verses 25 to 26. Ben-Hadid puts 
Samaria under siege, and then he sends this commission into the city, and he says, uh, "I want, I, I demand, basically your your gold and your 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 best wives and your best children." Now, this story really is almost funny because Ahab agrees to this, even though he has no intention of doing it. And then when when Ben Hadad uh, introduces a uh, an instrumentality through which he can really despoil Ahab of the things that he really holds dearest and despoil him of, of all of his real riches, then Ahab says, I can't do that. You know, <laughs> He says, yeah, you, come, you can have all my riches and all my women, all my children. Uh, but uh, ben, ben Hadad says, well, the next day I'm sending in people and they will they will come into your city and they will they will see what you, you love the most and they will take that. That's too much. <laughs> and it's just totally humorous to think that Ben Hadad is agreeing to the, the original uh, ultimation. He's agreeing that, that Ben Hadad can do what he wants. But then when Ben Hadad introduces this, this mechanism by which he can really do it, Ben Hadad says, That's too much. <laughs> yeah, so Ahab says, you can, you can have everything you want. But no, no, that, that's too much. And so that's what starts this whole thing uh, after the invasion. Now, uh, so uh, Ahab calls the elders of the people together in verse uh, verse 8, and uh, he describes the situation to them, and, and uh, they say, no, that's too much. They agree with, with uh, Ahab. Basically, they're saying it's time to fight. Yeah, before this, they were th- saying, if we can escape, the carnage of a war, we'll do it. We'll give up. We'll give up a whole lot to obtain some sort of a peace. But then, when Ahab, when Ben Hadad insists that the cost of that uh, uh, surrender or that appeasement is too high, they say, "No, okay, that's it. We, you know, you're not going to have that much. If, if we if we're despoiled to that degree, we might as well fight. We might as well protect ourselves." So it's very interesting. Uh, and, and like I say, almost humorous to, to watch these two liars uh, deal with each other, which is what the affairs of the world often are. People that are not honest, they have uh, our harm in their hearts and their design. And so uh, God gives Ben Hadad, he could have had a lot of things. He could have gotten a lot of booty with no cost at all to him, but he couldn't do that. He had to be greedy. He had to have more. And so... Uh, they they're poised to fight each other, and and at the in the midst of this at the precipice of this struggle, all of a sudden in verse eleven or verse thirteen, a prophet shows up. Now the prophet was already there in Samaria. God had his people planted, but all of a sudden a prophet comes out and makes this proclamation in the public square, and, and goes to the court and makes this proclamation to Ahab. There, verse thirteen says suddenly. A prophet approached Ahab, king of Israel, saying, Thus says the Lord. Now, you notice so far, we've had Ben-Hadad saying, Thus says Ben-Hadad. And Ahab, thus says Ahab. But now, we have a real thus saith, because it's the Lord. Thus saith the Lord. Have you seen all this great multitude? Now, there were 32, was it 32 or 36 kings that were gathered with Ben-Hadad. So, God says, the prophet says, have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will deliver it into your hand today. You shall know that I am the Lord. <laughs> ben Ahab could hardly, I mean, Ahab can hardly comprehend. I mean, he wants victory. 
he's not willing to just lay down and let them despoil him utterly. Uh, but he says, to, he says to the prophet, how is this going to happen? <laughs> and uh, the prophet says, um, and uh, uh, he, verse, uh, verse 14, he says, by the, by the young leaders of the provinces. And he says, who will set the battle in order? He says, you. <laughs> so, so Ahab doesn't know what he's doing, but he, he, he has this promise of God that if he takes these actions, that God will overcome this fairly large uh, entourage militarily that is arrayed against him. And so uh, uh, Ahab does that according to what the prophet said. He, he calls the young leaders of the nation. Now what basically what this amounts to is the, the leaders on more of a county level throughout the ten tribes of Israel that are there, that are represented in the capital in Samaria, and so these, these leaders of the various counties of the various tribes are there, and uh, he, so he calls them together, and he says, God, prophetically, God has given you the, uh, the decree that you will overcome these people. And so they, are, they, they receive their commission. They understand what the, what the picture is. They understand what God's plan is based upon what this prophet has said in their midst. And so um, the next day they go out, and the... Uh, uh, they went out at noon. It says after the text that we read, they went out at noon, and uh, Ben-Hadad and the 32 kings helping him were getting drunk in the camp uh, when this was going on. The young leaders of the provinces went out first, and Ben-Hadad sent out a patrol, and they told him, saying, men are coming out of Samaria. So he said, if they have come out for peace, take them alive. He has no idea what's going on. And so God set this plan in motion whereby the young leaders of the, uh, uh, in the smaller jurisdictions of the northern Israel, not even, not even the ten states or the ten tribal territories, but the smaller entities even in this, God says that he will do so much. When we are weak, then he is strong. And God, God does so much by, uh, in these ways. And so these men, they all, they all attack in their, own, in their own places, from their own positions on the battlefield. They started to attack him, and God gave them victory one after another, after another, and uh, the Assyrians were defeated, and then they they retreated, and they gathered their strength again. Verse twenty-two, and they they came out again, and uh, they they had this idea. They said, "Well, uh, Jehovah is a god of the hills. He's a god of the high places, but he's not a god of the lowlands of the plains. So we will we will amass ourselves on the plains, and we'll overcome these Israelites there." Well, the one thing that they didn't think about was that God is hearing this. And God, so God comes and he says to via the prophet again, he says, listen, they, this is what they said of me, that I was only the God of the hills and not the plains. So he says, I'm going to allow you to de defeat them on the plains too and teach them that I am the Lord. Teach them something about my sovereignty, and my omnipotence. That's wonderful. Uh, people continually debase the true God. They continually debase theology. Theology is the study of God. And so they tinker with it. They fiddle with it. They say that God uh, God is not the God that he says he is in the Bible. He's not really that way. He's this way. And God again and again shows that he is who he is. And he shows that our plans, our schemes, our ideas are not tantamount to the word of God. They're not tantamount to reality. 
we have a kind of unreality in our minds that we're constantly building up these sand castles and houses of cards that are ready to fall down at the least breath. And so uh, that's what God does. And God, God, uh, God destroys the armies of Ben-Hadad. And uh, as I said, Ahab tends, Ahab is one of those guys, one of those politicians that thinks even when you've got them down and your, your foot is on their neck, you still need to figure out a better way. That, that you, you know, that don't, don't go for total victory. We have lots of those guys today. They, they've, been, they've been guiding the, uh, the military might of America for 100 years now, basically. Uh, Vietnam and throughout the Middle East. It goes on and on. But anyway, the, in this case, uh, Ben-Hadad was really diminished in his strength. And uh, Ahab momentarily was strengthened by his cause. Uh, this certainly helped all of those small Israelites here and there that were following the Lord. They were not utterly destroyed or taken off their land. And so there were many temporal blessings that were worked out by the Lord as he used these two evil forces to destroy themselves. <clears throat> My fourth point here is that in the midst of this confusion, God speaks his word clearly. We had that in verse 13 when the prophet came and spoke. And so he does the same thing to us today. In the midst of all the clutter of this world, all the clutter of human affairs, God's word is still true. If the politicians of, their, of this world are able to, with their power, if they're able to force us to move this way and that way, does that totally destroy us? Of course not. We're sustained by the Lord to the degree that the Lord would sustain us. And so we accept that. And we say, yes, Lord, just help us in the straits where we find ourselves. But we follow the word of God. And at this time, there were people like Mary and Joseph amongst these ten tribes. Small people, insignificant people, but who had an ear for the, the, the voice of the Lord. And uh, they were being blessed by the, the way God was manipulating these powerful people and, uh, and uh, persuading them to, to lose their strength on these, these uh, wars of vanity between each other. Um, and so God gives us a lesson here of what we, what we should do. You know, in the book of Ecclesiastes, at the end, after all of the clutter that Solomon goes through, he says at the end, uh, at the end, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. So in the midst of the clutter of this world, that's, a, that's a, uh, Ecclesiastes uh, 12, uh, 13, and 14. In the midst of all the clutter of this world, God calls us to simply keep our eyes on the word of God. Just as this prophet came in the midst of all the confusion of Ben-Hadad and Ahab, all of a sudden, suddenly the Bible says, in the midst of that, the word of God is heard. And it's a word of clarity. And the word of clarity comes true. True, there's no, uh, there's no uh, confusion in that word of God. What God says, God brings to pass. What are the things that God says? God says, believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. If you believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you believe in the work of Jesus Christ, you shall be saved, no matter what Ben-Hadad does or Ahab says or anything else. 
In the midst of that, God says the kingdom of God will flourish. God says that the scepter of Judah, the scepter of power shall not depart from Judah, which ultimately lies with Christ. That the scepter of his power should, should not depart from Judah until the Lord's day, until the Lord decrees that he has come to wrap up all of this history, to, to, uh, to seal the bag and to take us all to heaven. So these are things that the Bible says. These are the sure things. God says, blessed are they, blessed are the godly, blessed are those, Psalm 1, uh, blessed are those who walk not in the ways of the wicked, who bow their knees down to the ungodly, or those who scheme and plot together and imagine a vain thing, Psalm 2. See, God gives us these things that are sure, that are the word of God. And so in the midst of all the clutter of our lives, let us, let us focus upon those things, especially the gospel and the kingdom of God. With the gospel, we can be happy in the deepest, darkest prison or on the highest mountain with the gospel. If we have Christ, then all things are fruitful to us. If we have not Christ, then all the fruitful things of this world are as nothing to us. They're like dross. They're like the dust that Ben Hadad talked about that would not remain uh, in Samaria. And so God calls us to walk faithfully despite the clutter, despite the confusions of our lives. To have that magnetic north on our compass so that whichever way you turn the base of the compass, how much, no matter how much clutter there is in your life, because you are focused on that magnetic north of the gospel and the kingdom, you will be substantiated. You will be blessed. Let's close in prayer. Our Father and our God, we thank thee for this passage, even though it's somewhat confusing at the first, because it doesn't evolve your elect, but we know your elect can profit from it. So we pray that we might. We pray for thy blessings in the midst of the clutter of this modern world. We pray that we might be uh, of those who are called according to thy purposes. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.